Hi, I'm Mark from Minneapolis. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests on the program are the hosts of the WNYC produced and national public radio distributed uh, news and news industry analysis program on the media. Uh, Bob Garfield, uh, also a critic for Ad Age and uh, the author of several books. Brooke Gladstone, a national public radio veteran. Uh, guys, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's really great to have you. Thanks. Thank you ever so much. Was that sarcastic, Bob? <laughs> That's the problem with Bob, is he always sounds sarcastic, <laughs> even when he's serious. I just want to say about the introduction that it's frustrating that I have no other marketable skills except radio. <laughs> you said veteran. I would say legend. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, as I understand it, the two of you first worked together uh, when, Brooke, you were uh, Bob's editor when you were uh, in the pre-on-the-media days. Um, what was Bob like to work with then, Brooke? He was much more malleable. You see, I was the senior editor of All Things Considered, and, and, you know, Bob realized that he had to sell his story every time. And since, uh, as he says, I was uh, perhaps the only editor who really understood his sense of humor, uh, he wanted to get along. So, you know, I could crush him under my stiletto and he'd take it. Now, God, now he just insists on fighting back. It's what was it like true. for you, Bob? <laughs> I don't recall. You saying that Brooke and I had met earlier? <laughs> <laughs> 1987, I believe. Jesse, I don't even know what I had for breakfast this morning. I do vaguely <laughs> remember I do remember a raven-haired beauty who uh, sat in the editor's chair, who was the only editor actually that I've ever had who I could not trick by papering over holes in stories with, with clever writing and other sort of gym cracks. She instantly found the holes, uh, you know, was not shy about ridiculing me about them, and then uh, I was, you know, it behooved me to fix them. And now, you know, I jumped at the opportunity to be, you know, systematically humiliated every single week. Of course, why wouldn't I? <laughs> You guys have fun, huh? <laughs> you know, that's the hardest question that you've asked, Jesse. I don't think words can describe exactly what it is Bob and I have. But I don't fun, think fun. Not in the traditional sense, no. No, I wouldn't. Not fun. But we respire. <laughs> Brooke, when you guys took over on the media, it, it had already had a few incarnations. Um, and it was sort of making a transition from a sort of shoestrap show to a kind of uh, real national radio program. When you got roped into the whole thing, what did you imagine for the show? What were you hoping to create? Well, I had been NPR's media 
reporter for about six years at that point, and I was feeling kind of restless. And I realized that, for one thing, I wanted to define the word very, very broadly because I felt so confined by the beat. And for another, I had this idea, and uh, so did Bob, and so did Dean Capello, and and uh, the rest of the staff that was here. Uh, the only one left from uh, from those original days, besides uh, me and Bob, uh, is Cat, who actually worked on an earlier incarnation of the program. Katya Rogers, our senior producer, but we had this idea that we wanted to disclose that rather than retreat behind a kind of stone-faced objectivity or or appearance of objectivity, that we would use disclosure as the kind of vaccination. Since we were often, often going to sit in judgment of our colleagues and pick apart their work, we decided to just lay our own prejudices out on the table. And just like a, a movie reviewer does, you know, you know, oh, well, that movie reviewer never, never likes any Woody Allen film, so you, you can't trust him on Woody Allen. You know, you'll know that On the Media is biased in, in favor of an almost blanket fiat for the First Amendment and that we're going to almost always err on the side of supporting more information rather than less, although there are some exceptions, and, and a bunch of other prejudices that we have, including uh, especially during the Bush administration, which was such a secretive administration and one where there was such a stranglehold on information, we were uh, pretty much opposed to almost all the media policies and information policies of the Bush administration. That was obvious, too. We have a lot of people who don't agree with us politically, uh, and obviously if, if the Obama administration starts having the same stranglehold, we'll be against that as well. But we figured that we would do it that way, and that way was really different from how NPR in general does things. But then again, we are NPR, the only NPR-distributed hour of analysis and commentary rather than news. I wanted to ask you about that because the tone of your program, not just in the context of uh, national public radio, but in the context of public radio in general, is really, really different. Um, when you went to this, what is basically uh, aspires to be an objective uh, news organization with the idea that this show on media was going to be um, very much from the perspective of uh, its two hosts. Um, what was the reaction? I have to say, and, and we did, Bob, we, wait, 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 we didn't tell them. They, they, they found out. <laughs> they, that's they, that, they kind that's of exactly it right. Out after the fact, were there secret <laughs> memoranda? <laughs> no, it was just what we decided to do, and we did it in you know in in cooperation with WNYC. And to be honest with you, I think it, it has taken NPR at times by surprise. I think it's fair to say we were both kind of problem children for the network in various ways uh, before we took this job. And that uh, that has not changed, that they still don't quite know how to deal with us because what we do is so unlike everything else uh, that NPR does. It works so hard to play it right down the middle, and we work so hard to speak our version of truth and uh, that you know the network, I think, continues to be uncomfortable with that. But how do you do an analysis and criticism show without bringing a point of view, not to say an ideology, but a point of view to every single story you report? You know, Brooke and I always talk about this. Uh, there's this tick that interviewers have. They want to ask a question, but they don't want to sound argumentative. So they say, 
Well, Senator, what would you say to your critics who contend that, and then, you know, you fill in the blanks. Well, we don't play that game. We, we, we just ask the question straight, and if people impute to us some sort of bias, well, that's, that's kind of their problem. What do you say to your critics who would argue <laughs> that, <laughs> that, there, that there isn't room for perspective in the public radio interview, that um, maybe when you're editorializing, which you do on the show, um, then that should have your personal perspectives. But uh, when you're presenting someone else's ideas, you should try to be, your ideal at least should be to be dispassionate. I don't see... Well, 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 there's no point in being dispassionate. As long as you're being fair, what, what, is dispassion, what does dispassion bring? Is there a word, dispassion? <laughs> I'm not sure what that brings to an analysis. I'm sorry, Brooke, I cut you off. No, no. I, I mean, I, I think I was going to... And gonna... furthermore... <laughs> I, I was going to say pretty much the same thing. I think that attitude actually informs a discussion as long as it isn't allowed to stomp all over the discussion, crush it, strangle it to death. Why not bring in a perspective if you've got the other perspective to push against? It creates a, a sense of... Uh, it makes a more interesting discussion. I think it makes a more informed discussion, and it certainly helps present the stakes. And I think one thing that the program tries to do is take this abstract, amorphous issue called media, which is about, you know, perceptions and trends and so on, and explain every single time with every single interview what those stakes are. If you don't care about something, why should the listener and, you know, we really, we, we may be opinionated, but we're not doctrinaire. You know, we don't just take a story and, and put it through the uh, opinionation machine and then come out, come out with the pre-programmed result. I mean, we look at every single story on its, on its merits. The only times I would say we have become doctrinaire is, I mean, I, here I'm speaking for myself, I became quite radicalized during the Bush administration by what the administration was doing along a you know, the, along the whole scope of its responsibilities. And uh, I I will go to my grave believing that Fox News is a, Fox News Channel is a stain on our democracy. That said, um, you know, if, if, if they did something fantastic, uh, you know, I, we, we'd cover it. <laughs> yes, we would. We would. What do you see as being uh, the difference, Bob, between uh, the perspective that informs uh, the work of the Fox News Channel, which I think is is pretty undeniable that they have a strong perspective, and the perspective that informs on the media? Not the difference between the perspectives, but the difference between the way they're applied. Uh, you know, one way of saying it would be intellectual honesty, approaching each story on its merits and and looking at uh, looking at all the various sides, uh, and you know another way of saying it would be sleazy, not being beholden to a political political constituency and being used as the sort of house organ for a political point of view. Uh, you know, I would say that's the big difference. Uh, we're you know we're not in anybody's pocket. We are nobody's house organ. Uh, you know, there was something, I don't know if we're going to do it this week, because we are, we got, a couple of years ago, we got tired of 
criticizing Fox, and we may do it as a joke this week, but as an example of a sort of intellectual honesty, uh, Fox offered a montage of tape of various Democrats uh, saying that the economy had turned around, that the economy was much better, and they quoted Joe Biden saying the fundamentals of the economy are sound. And uh, and this, and then they said, you see, the Democrats are suddenly saying everything's okay. And, and the tape they took was Joe Biden quoting John McCain from the campaign. And, you know, that that's what I'm talking about, intellectual honesty. I mean, yikes. They, they don't even care. And, you know, and that's just in the last 24 hours. <laughs> if you go back 10 years, man, you don't have the hours. It seems like the basic center or first step of all media criticism ends up being uh, looking for bias, um, and I wonder not only what bias you see in the news media, but also whether we're looking for the right kind of bias. Ah, that's a really, really interesting question, because you probably know since you listen to the show that Bob and I spend a lot of time talking about false equivalency, presenting a he said, she said argument in perfect equal balance where, you know, when the arguments themselves are not equal, the way that global warming was covered for a very long time, the uh, the pro-global warming idea uh, scientist who was part of an enormous consensus and the anti-global warming idea from a scientist who was frequently being paid for by uh, by GE. Uh, th- this is the sort of thing that that we do guard against much more than we do political bias. In fact, uh, there is an argument that uh, this canard about uh, liberal bias has created uh, a media that bends over backwards not to show bias by being biased to the other side. Uh, the fact is is that you know both Bushes had much longer honeymoons than uh, than either Clinton or or even Obama has. Although Obama may be a special case given the historic moment and so on. But still, he's getting, you know, there's still an effort to challenge him. Has he lost it? Is it gone? You know, what's going to happen now? We can't get a consensus. He didn't fulfill his campaign promise, blah, blah, blah. There, You see, historically, over and over again, till since at least the 70s, that kind of... Uh, effort to bend over backwards, because in fact, I think most journalists, uh, studies say most journalists are liberals, but that doesn't mean that they report liberally. Uh, I just want to say that, you know, the the liberal bias canard is only half canard. The bias part is probably not especially true, but as Brooks said, the values of journalism by and large overlap. I mean, the Venn diagram uh, is an almost total overlap of progressive or liberal political views and the kind of values that inform journalism. Oh, I don't agree with uh, that. <clears throat> yeah, well, I'll just finish my thought and then you can jump all over <laughs> me. I mean, it's just skepticism of of uh, power and uh, uh, looking out for the little guy and a suspicion of... Uh, can I jump over you now? opposing opinion, here's Brooke <laughs> Gladstone. Okay, here's the thing is, is that I agree that there is Venn diagram overlap, and I agree that it is entirely over the area of uh, the desire to question authority, uh, you know, to... 
uh, bang up against institutions and power, which, you know, which especially in the last few years has been in the hands of conservatives. Although, again, I think mitigating against this is the effort to uh, bend over backwards in the other direction. I don't know that there is almost a perfect, you know, I think Bob said almost 100 percent overlap when it comes to uh, liberal political perspectives, because I think, you know, liberal is a moving target. I do think that there is a bias. Uh, there is a a pro status quo bias in journalism that, you know, there are certain basic things that journalists have as a as a starting point. You know, we don't question the Constitution and 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 a bunch of other things, a pro status quo bias that you see across coverage and historically, uh, you know, in, in the coverage of slavery that, you know, and it's hard to get journalists off that dime. And whether that's, uh, you know, considered liberal or not, I think that that is a bias. There's also, and I know you've discussed this on your show before, Jesse, uh, a narrative bias, a a desire to put things in in terms of a story that will, that has a beginning, middle and end that will bump up hard against uh, stories that are sequential or incremental, like science stories. Uh, You know, so there there are those sorts of repertorial biases. Yeah. Or even governance. Mm-hmm. I mean, politics often, usually, the default mode is to let stories of governance and this, the slow workings of of city councils, the, the nation over um, uh, being pushed out for, you know, kind of process stories of, of uh, pol- political conflict and so forth, just because they've got more drama and, and they, because they have a daily beginning, a middle and end. And, you know, that's kind of a tragedy. But I mean, I don't think when people are talking about bias in the media, I, I don't really think they're talking about the bias towards covering the horse race as opposed to covering the, the, the policy. I think they're talking about the bias to uh, support liberal ideas and and to uh, suppress conservative ones. Right. But I think that as we pick apart uh, the work of, of journalists, uh, we are looking at those other biases. What counts as uh, media? <sighs> Everything is media on our show. Frogs are media. Fluorescent neckties. <laughs> Fluorescent neckties are media. Everything is media. Uh, and, and that's only a slight exaggeration. We we define it very, very broadly. And, and you know, it's just, I mean, I wouldn't even know where to, where to say media ends, but uh, anything that it, that that reaches the uh, large audience, either electronically or otherwise, uh, it, you know, can constitute media. Plus, throw into that all First Amendment issues. Anything that has to do with freedom of speech, privacy, uh, uh, is also in our por- portfolio. So, um, everything. The uh, you know wh- whether uh, whether the Mets really have a good starting rotation this year could lead our show. <laughs> no, it couldn't. <laughs> but, I hate sports. But they're they're on TV a lot. No, I think that no, I think that that could lead us. Uh, yeah, if first week in April, it'll probably be the Mets rotation. My, I'm just guessing. <laughs> yeah, when I'm off. So Jesse, enough about us. What do you think about us? <laughs> Brooke, I'm a dispassionate public radio interviewer. I never betray my feelings or show interest in what I'm talking about. Um, Bravo. I don't want you to mistake the fact that Brooke and I have been on this show for more than eight years with interest in the subject. (laughs) (laughs) 
I think the pace and tone of the of the show is is due principally to the fact that uh, I have ADD and take Adderall. <laughs> lots, oh, fair enough. Lots and lots of Adderall. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Cat <laughs> just gave me a look like, "Are you kidding?" Anyway, no. does anyone listen? Do you have an audience for your show, Jesse? I mean, not how, to how speak badly of, is this going to come back to us? Okay. Um, certainly, no public radio listeners listen to my show, <laughs> despite the fact that it runs on public radio stations. Anyway, um, everyone should God know I have your marginal. I have a doctor's note. <laughs> <laughs> It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone from NPR's On the Media. We'll have more with Bob and Brooke in just a minute when we come back. Production of the sound of young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. The sound of young America is live in Portland for the Bridgetown Comedy Festival this month. The show's April 25th at 4 p.m. at the Baghdad Theater in Portland. Come see comedy from the third floor and Reggie Watts, music from Blitz and Trapper and Mira, and interviews with comics writer Brian Michael Bendis and comic Nick Kroll, one of the stars of Arrested Development creator Mitch Hurwitz's new series, Sit Down and Shut Up. You can find more information, including information about the Monsters of Podcasting show the next night, online at the live page of MaximumFun.org. And if you're in Seattle, don't miss the Monsters of Podcasting there Thursday the 23rd. Just visit MaximumFun.org and click on Live. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone from NPR's On the Media. So you want to hear something just absolutely pathetic? So we have devoted the last eight and a half years of our life to taking a serious, rigorous look at the media and the society. Uh, we're, we're looking for... Uh, uh, we're, we're looking for uh, bad reporting. We're looking for bad faith. Uh, we're looking for hypocrisy. We're looking for incompetence. And God, you make uh, us you sound know, like built... such pompous a holes. We yeah, exactly. This is exactly my point. And John Stewart does the same thing every night for an audience three and a half times larger and much better. And you know, sometimes it's hard to to get out of bed in the morning. Because uh, let me let me just correct. We, get, we have one little sting, and his show is so funny. His show is so good. But when we talk about uh, much better, we were referring to the way Jon Stewart handles this issue and not to his audience. Because our audience is great. Oh, oh, yeah, we got a better audience, yeah. And better managers. Uh, our, our managers are, are top drawer. And, of course, we're part of the public radio community, which, you know, you can't beat that. Which way better than cable, you know, and Viacom. So, yeah, they stink. But his show is funny. <laughs> now, there is one key difference between your show and his show. Besides um, being funny? Besides, well, <laughs> no comment. But, um, uh, well, I would say two key differences. One is there's a lot less applause breaks in your show, which I appreciate. <laughs> but uh, the second is uh, that as wonderful a media critic as Jon Stewart is, um, he seems very disinterested in uh, bearing the burden of responsibility for anything he says and, in fact, insists that uh, insists against all questioning that all he's trying to do is be funny, and that's it forever and ever. Amen. 
Right. Yeah, no, this, this is true, of course. Uh, he has, you know, created a, a wonderfully convenient out for himself, although actually he's using that line less and less. I don't think he used it at all with uh, with Jim Cramer recently. Uh, he did. I think, oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, he did. did. He? Oh, excuse me. But, you know, I, I do think that he is performing the role of viewer surrogate. But yes, he doesn't have to take responsibility. There are lots of times during the campaign where he took many, many, many quotes out of context, just in the way that we described earlier that Fox did with Joe Biden for the sake of comic impact. So if you get your news from uh, the Jon Stewart show, as many, many people do, uh, you know, you're not always going to be the best informed person in the world, although there are studies that suggest people who do watch that show know more than people who don't, but that may be the kind of audience he attracts, maybe also reads the New York Times and so on. But, uh, yeah, you know, he doesn't have to take responsibility. We can't be funny all the time. We're talking about serious things in serious ways in every single program that we do. And our mission is different and and our priorities are different. It's just when he does an incredibly well-researched takedown, uh, it just makes us all feel, you know, kind of bad. Do you guys feel as confident uh about covering the emerging new media as you do about covering the whatever the opposite of emerging old media? Well, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to feel confident about covering something that is constantly evolving. I mean, you know, the the old newspaper industry has been around for, uh, you know, a, a century or more, depending on where you want to start counting from. So, you know, we knew what we were talking about there. And of course, Bob and I have emerged from old media. So, you know, I think we have less confidence, but we have every bit as much, if not more, curiosity about it. And I'm incredibly excited about it. So I am motivated to uh, to read whatever people are saying about it and to consume it in vast quantities. So I don't know if the confidence is the issue, as long as we ask the questions that people want us to ask. Do you think it's difficult not to get caught up in uh, mourning what is being lost? I don't mourn, but uh, I won't speak for Bob. <laughs> well, I am mourning. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the brave new world will take us in places that the cowardly old world never could. That said, I love what newspapers were and to some extent still are. Uh, and I, I, it's part of my life, part of my ritual, and I, I, it's hard for me to get my arm around the idea, get my arms around the idea that I'm not going to have, you know, my Washington Post and New York Times, you know, to read over the breakfast table, and especially the daily treat of opening it up and finding, you know, yet another unwrapped Christmas present. Uh, oh, and here's another, and here's another. Oh, I wonder what this one's going to be. I, I don't get that experience online. Uh, and, and then there's the question of, in, in this chaotic period between the death of the old and the, the evolution of the new, there, you know, we're going to lose a lot of what we, could, what we took for granted, which is well-funded, intensive reporting, not only on investigative pieces, but on, on beats. And uh, the, the the distributed universe is going to do an amazing job, but that's not sorted out yet. Nobody knows how any of this is going to get paid for. Nobody's quite sure who's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and uh, what place judgment and experience will play in 
in the uh, aggregation and distribution of news in the future. So, you know, these are a lot of unanswered questions. There was nothing unanswered about how the New York Times get, gets put out every day, and uh, it was a pretty satisfactory product. Uh, I I certainly agree with Bob that, you know, as Gramsci said, you know, the old world is dead, the new world is yet to be born, and in the interregnum there is much morbidity. We are in the morbidity moment, and, and it is a little <laughs> nerve-wracking, but, you know, as, as Bob will tell you, I am a total science fiction geek, and you may ask, what does that have to do with anything? But the fact is, is that I don't know that any of the things that Bob is talking about being lost are going to be permanently lost or whether they will emerge in a different form. And I'm also excited about the the new kinds of ways that we're going to get information, the, the new ways that we're going to be plugged into each other. I am frightened of, of the echo chamber phenomenon. And, and that is the one thing that, that really does alarm me. But mostly I'm filled with a kind of sci-fi excitement for the future. Well, Bob and Brooke, I don't want to take up any more of your incredibly short time, I'm sure. So thank you so much for coming on the San Diego America. <laughs> wow. It was really great well, to have you. Well, we're not that old, Jesse. Yeah. What do you know that we don't know? <laughs> also, uh, you know, why are you so quick to lead? I, and I thought we were just getting started. I know. I didn't even I didn't even get to bring up the time uh, that Bob tried stand-up comedy for the show. <laughs> um, but seriously, uh, uh, Bob Garfield, Brooke Gladstone, from uh, NPR's On the Media. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the San Diego America. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Jesse. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. Our intern is... Brian Fernandez. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And if you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. Hey, guess what? Our third annual Maximum Fun Drive is coming up May 1st through May 15th. So if you're not already a Sound of Young America donor, get ready to become one. I hope that was convincing. Anyway, we'll see you later this week on the Sound of Young America. <laughs> <laughs>